starting in Daniel chapter 2 this evening. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1 is where we'll put in. In the last few years, the political world has seen a shift away from relying on so-called policy experts, and the media likes to talk about it. This has been a theme both in the Trump campaign administration and notably in the Brexit among their politicians over there. In 2016, then High Chancellor Michael Gove, does anybody know what a High Chancellor is? It sounds important, but High Chancellor Michael Gove, a leader in the charge to leave the European Union, said this. He said, I think the people of this country have had enough of experts with organizations, with acronyms, saying that they know what is best and then getting it consistently wrong. There's been a lot of talk and study done on why people in general seem to trust so-called experts less and less. It's definitely an observable phenomenon. It's just that they don't know why exactly it's happening. Some suggest it has to do with crowdsourcing. When you think about it, we crowdsource everything these days, right? Not just uh, Kickstarter to crowdsource finances. We crowdsource everything because of social media. You know, you reach for Yelp rather than Zagat's when you want to find a new restaurant in town. Uh, But one piece of research was looking into why trust in experts has eroded, and here's what they found. This is a quote from their finding. The authors argue need three characteristics, expertise, integrity, and benevolence. In other words, knowing stuff isn't enough. For us to rate a person as a trustworthy expert, they need to know their information to be honest and to be good-hearted. So the problem is, on average, I think we have a growing suspicion that the expert talking to us from the TV screen perhaps lacks integrity and is maybe not as interested in our well-being as maybe their own wealth building. Here in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar is going to find that his own experts absolutely could not be trusted uh, when couldn't come at a worse time for him. He's served by it that he can no longer sleep. He can't get it out of his mind. He can't shake it. And so he calls the very best experts Babylon has to offer, hoping that they can make some sense of what's going on for him. Now, if you were a Babylonian wise man at the time, this was sort of a tricky situation that you found yourself in because when you go to talk to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you really don't want him to be exhausted, on edge, and wigged out. When he calls him in, hey, what's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. I haven't slept in a week, and I can't get this out of my mind. So you already know that you're on thin ice because he's a nut job that kills people left and right. But even more than that, these guys would be coming into this meeting uh, with a real reason to fear because when the chips are down, they don't actually know what they're talking about, and they're going to admit as much in our text tonight. They didn't have real insight into the things they claimed to know about. But the king brought them in that day and ends up giving them a do-or-die challenge. Now, as students of this story, we will see once again, like we've been seeing in these studies, a wonderful comparison between the Babylonian king on the page and our own king, Jesus Christ. And we can think about some principles of truth and our part to play as ministers of the truth and when desperate men come looking for answers. Now, Daniel 2, generally speaking, is a very, very significant portion of Scripture. It sounds almost silly saying that, but 
when you're comparing Scripture with Scripture. All of it, of course, is significant, necessary, perfect. We love it. Uh, Daniel 2 is one of those passages that rises to the top when it comes to uh, specialness or significance. And there's a couple of reasons. First of all, it's often called by scholars and commentators the alphabet or the ABCs of prophecy. Really, really important prophetic passage. Charles Feinberg writes this, Whoever wishes to understand the prophetic scriptures must come to this chapter for the broad outline of God's future program for the nations, for Israel, and for the glorious kingdom of the Messiah. Now, we're going to see that part of chapter 2 uh, in the later part of the chapter when Nebuchadnezzar's dream is explained. So we won't get to that part tonight, but that's what's coming. This chapter is also pretty significant because if we were reading in the original or ancient manuscripts, we would see that beginning in verse 4, Daniel switches from writing in the Hebrew language to suddenly writing in the Aramaic language. Kind of interesting. From the quote that you see in verse 4, if you look down, you'll see it says, and they said, O king, right? And as soon as that quote starts, Daniel's writing in Aramaic, and he's going to keep writing in Aramaic all the way through chapter 7, till chapter 7 ends. Dr. Charles Ryrie points out that Aramaic was the common language of the Assyrian Empire, was used in both the Neo-Babylonian and Persian empires as the diplomatic and commercial language. So at the time... And even further, into the time of Jesus, this became a very important Gentile language for many peoples and many places there in the ancient world. And what we're going to find is that this section of Daniel is largely a revelation for the Gentile world. And so, this revelation for the Gentile world was written in their very own language, a language that they could understand so that they could hear what God wants to say to them. If a Gentile read this book in that time, they would see a message about God, this God of Daniel, intervening, and they would see this God has a plan to continue intervening throughout the flow of history, culminating in the establishment of a heavenly kingdom one day here on the earth. And they would learn about a God that can be known, a God that works on behalf of his people, a God of grace and forgiveness and compassion. And so, great, great passage. And we'll see here that this revelation from God starts not with a directive being given to a Jewish prophet, but a dream being given to a pagan king. This is one of those times where, as human beings, if we were planning this all out, we wouldn't have done it this way. If we, if we were having a meeting with God and he says, okay, I have maybe the, the, one of the most important prophetic sections of the Bible. We need to get that out there. How should we do it? We'd have all these schemes and ideas and things like this. And then God says, how about we send a dream to a pagan king, maybe the most wicked man on the face of the earth. We'll send him the dream. What? Whose idea is that? But that's exactly what God did. And in verse 1, we see this. Now, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Scholars uh, argue over when exactly this took place. And it has to do with how the Babylonian historians marked the years of kings and that sort of thing. Uh, we don't need to get bogged down in that. But our text here begins either toward the end of Daniel's training, which we were talking about last time, or really soon after his graduation. So uh, pretty early. Linguists point out the strength of the words used here by Daniel. When it says that his sleep left him, 
It can be translated as his sleep was done for. I like that. I mean, he was done. He was not sleeping. And this wasn't like, oh, he woke up once and that was kind of weird and rolled over and went back to bed. I mean, Daniel is telling us his sleep was done for. And we see there the, the plural dreams. He was having this dream again and again, and eventually he just stopped sleeping. Uh, he would find no rest until this issue was dealt with in his mind. Now, I don't know if uh, any of you are nightmare people uh, or have bad dreams on the reg. I have bad dreams all the time. I just always have. I don't know. It's just who knows what's going on in dreams. But even if you've had recurring nightmares, as bad as they are, their effect usually dissipates as soon as you wake up, right? Think of the last bad dream you have. I know there's probably a few of you in here who say, I never dream. Okay, but if you have had a bad dream, what happens? You wake up and you're kind of freaked out for about three seconds, right? And they're like, oh, it was a dream. I'm so glad that's over. Well, that wasn't happening with Nebuchadnezzar. He woke up, but the intensity and the anxiety just grew and grew and grew. And then the next night he went to sleep and it happened again. And then the next night until eventually he was so freaked out, he couldn't sleep anymore. And and the bad feelings, the anxiety weren't going away. We'll see later, you know, if you're familiar with this passage and you know what is in his dream, it's the dream of a statue. Come on, man. There's nothing scary about a statue, right? It's not like he was having a horror dream, but there was something so important about this dream and and something that bothered him deep in his spirit because he realized its significance and that it really meant something, but he had no idea what it meant or how he could figure out what it meant. And so he had these thoughts all about this dream, didn't know what to think, but knew he needed to understand. Verse 2 says, Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. This is quite a meeting. Daniel lists four classes of experts here. These are the top guys in the empire, the top guys in the government. Uh, They're smart guys, powerful guys, guys with a lot of influence and a lot of swagger. They each claimed, each category of guys, that is, claimed to have secret knowledge or abilities. Uh, Whether it was knowing the past or divining the future, whether it was conjuring spells or making magic potions, whether it was reading the stars or contacting the dead. These guys said, oh yeah, we do all of that. And so, hey, Man, this is exactly who you need to answer these sorts of questions if you're Nebuchadnezzar. And if you're one of these guys, this kind of summons is what you live for. Now, you don't really want to have too much face-to-face time with Nebuchadnezzar because he would kill people like it was nothing. But this is what you live for, right? They should be all over this. The king of the empire has called them and says, hey, I need you guys. I don't know what to do. And then they get to do all their hocus-pocus or whatever, and they enlarge their mystique, you know, and they get to look important and powerful. And so this is starting off as a real good day for these guys. Uh, Now, it's not all the wise men in the realm. These are just representatives of each of these groups. We'll see. Daniel, will find out, isn't there. And so we don't know how many of them were in there, but uh, it's not all of the wise men of Babylon. Verse 3, And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, and this is where Aramaic starts. O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. 
So it's a pretty normal situation for the time and the place. I mean, we even see something very similar to this in a different uh, empire, in the Egyptian empire. We recall in Genesis when Pharaoh, Pharaoh had an unusual dream about the fat cows and the skinny cows. He did the same thing. He called his magicians and his wise men and he says, hey, I need help with this. And that's what ended up getting Joseph out of prison, if you're familiar with the Genesis record. The wise men here figure, hey, this is what we do. This is how it happens. Uh, we'll get the dream. We'll run it through our sort of mill of hocus pocus. We'll churn out a palatable message to the king. We'll get a bunch of attaboys. Everything will be great. They don't know what we've already been told in the first couple of verses, that this is not just business as usual as far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned. I mean, this is very different for him. They think, hey, we're just coming to work. Yeah, he's summoned us. Look how important we are. And Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, I'm at a breaking point here. I have to have an answer. This isn't just some, you know, I ate a spicy burrito and had a weird dream that night. I mean, he knows that this is something else. This is a critical situation in his mind, and he's about to make that abundantly clear. Verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. So just to be clear, here's what he's saying. He says, okay, I had a dream. They said, go ahead and tell us your dream. We'll tell you what it means. He says, no, no, no. This is what you're going to do. I need to be sure that you know what you're talking about, so you tell me the dream that I had, and if you can do that, I know that you can explain it. And so that's what's going on here. Now, there's a little bit of disagreement. Have you noticed that scholars like to disagree? They live to disagree. There's some disagreement about the translation in verse 5. If you have a King James Bible with you, for example, you'll see that verse 5 is sort of uh, rendered a little bit differently. It says that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten his dream. Or if you're reading in the NASB, it doesn't really say that, but the heading of this section will say, it will title this section, The King's Forgotten Dream. And so... Scholars say, well, he, they look at the language, they say, well, we think the king forgot his dream, and he was honestly asking them, what did I dream? But most versions are going to favor what we read here. Not that the king had forgotten the dream, but the words there at the beginning can also be rendered what we read, that he was firmly decided concerning his plan. And that certainly seems to be corroborated in the context, right? seems clear that he obviously knew what his dream was, because then he could measure it against what they were going to tell him, Right? And that's how he was able to test whether these wise men uh, knew what they were talking about or not. So just a little bit of clarification in case you have one of those other versions. So what has started off as a normal, even a special day for these guys had suddenly become a life and death situation. Uh-oh. They did not plan on this that day. But you know, in reality, this right here is the balance that every human being finds themselves in all the time. And those who are unbelieving, particularly. If you're a Christian here tonight, your eternal destiny has been decided because Jesus Christ took your place, died for your sins, and you've received the salvation that He offers, right? And so because of that, you've been given everlasting life and a guaranteed entrance into heaven. 
He has cast away your sins as far as the east is from the west. Thank you, Lord. If you're not a believer, well, you live in exactly the situation that these magicians found themselves in that day. Because at some point, there is a moment where you are going to be called before the throne of the great king. And at that throne, there are only two options, life or death, right? When sometimes we talk in popular culture, we'll say you're going to meet your maker, right? Well, in reality, you are going to meet your maker one day. And the Bible explains that we decide in this life whether we're going to be saved in eternity or whether we're going to be condemned to hell for an eternity. Now, the difference is King Jesus is a king of grace, not a king of savagery and rage like Nebuchadnezzar is here, right? Jesus Christ doesn't make us work or perform a trick in order to save ourselves like Nebuchadnezzar wants these guys to do. Rather, Jesus offers life and salvation to anyone who is willing. He offers the forgiveness of sins as a free gift. But the point is, whether a person realizes it or not, they are in a life and death situation when it comes to their eternity. The wise men of Babylon were suddenly facing destruction for being unable to perform for their king. Now, those who die and go to a Christless eternity in hell aren't sent there because they were unable to do something for Jesus. They are sent there uh, because they were unwilling to receive him as Savior. Born again. Jesus Christ said, you must be born again. If you are not saved, uh, born again, then you need to know that you will stand before the king on his throne one day and you will have to give an account and you will be found to not be saved and you will not be written in the Lamb's book of life and the only option for you is the one that these guys were staring at and that was certain destruction. Verse 7 says this, They, the wise men, answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we'll give its interpretation. So the Chaldeans are a little bit between a rock and a hard place here. They had no answers. They knew they had no answers, but they needed to say something. So they stalled for time, hoping the king's mood might improve. Nebuchadnezzar clearly had some mental problems. And so they were hoping maybe if we can just, you know, maybe maybe he's joking. He's not really a jokester, but let's go for it again. (laughs) You know, but when you think about it, think about it for a minute. What Nebuchadnezzar is asking for really isn't that crazy, right? I mean, If you have a group of people who say, we define the future, and we can read the stars, and we can conjure magic, and we can manipulate reality, we can do all of these things. Okay, well, then if that's the case, then what he's asking them to do shouldn't be all that hard. If these men really did have the power to know the future, to change the present, to conjure magic, and all that they claimed, why shouldn't they be able to tell him the dream that he had? If you hire a chef to prepare you a meal, right? Uh, They don't come in and say, great, you do the prep, you cook all the components, you get everything out for me, you can say that I made it. You say, no, man, like you do all of that stuff, that's what you're here for, you're the chef. And so, in a strange way, I think we can understand Nebuchadnezzar's logic. Verse 8 says this, the king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. 
Hard to live under a tyrant, no fun at all. Of course, it's also hard to be the guy at the top, too. If you're Nebuchadnezzar, you're having a real sort of crisis in your mind and in your life right now. You need some real answers. You need some real truth. And it's kind of hard to be the guy at the top in this scheme as well. Uh, Some of you are familiar with the story of the sword of Damocles, right? It could have been written about Nebuchadnezzar, that this sword is hanging above the head all the time. He's got all this power, but he knows that these wise servants of his aren't really as uh, concerned with his well-being as they are with their own well-being, their own wealth, their own success, their own position. After all, most of these guys had served under Nebuchadnezzar's father when he was king, and theoretically, they'd be around when the next man was on the throne. These sorts of kings don't last really long a lot of the time, and the wise men are thinking, hey, the next guy will come in and we'll be the wise men for him. And you know, it's not just Babylon. This, of course, still happens today with yes-men and people who have their own agendas, who are trying to, you know, push out their, um, you know, uh, their own sort of ideas and those sorts of things. A famous Stanford study found that, quote, most published research findings are false. I think they found that at least 50% of them are just patently false. Of course, that was relayed in a study, so I don't know if I'm supposed to believe it or not. That's like one of those things, everything I say is a lie. Oh, no. Now I'm stuck in this loop of what should should I believe, right? But so Stanford did this study on studies and found that, you know what, of all the published research studies, most of them are just false. They're just not telling the truth. Sometimes it's because companies fund the research and either suppress negative findings or it's understood that only positive findings will be found, right? For example, Coca-Cola has been discovered to pay scientists who mysteriously always discover that it's lack of exercise, not your eating habits that cause obesity. Don't get me wrong, I love Coca-Cola. I'm an American. When when we're down in Colombia, it's my favorite thing. There's Coca-Cola. You want to know why? They put real sugar in it down there. But it's great. But this is the kind of thing that happens. In 1 Kings chapter 22, a similar situation plays out. You have King Ahab from the north, King Jehoshaphat from the south battle. And so they call in the supposed expert. They call in these men who say, we speak for God. We're the prophets. And they say, okay, should we do this? And they say, oh, of course, you guys are so smart. You kings are so great. Just go and do it. It's going to be the best thing ever. And they're just flattering them and puffing them up. And it's, it's clear that they're just yes men. And so Jehoshaphat finally leans over to Ahab and says, hey, man, isn't there a real prophet of the Lord here? Because these guys obviously are not prophets of the Lord. So can we talk to a real guy? And Ahab, it's a great passage. Ahab's like, yeah, there's this one guy. But all he ever says is bad things to me. Well, it's because you're the most wicked king ever. But so they call this other guy in. And finally, he says, yeah, here's what's going to happen. You people are going to die out in that battle. It's going to be your doom and your ruin. And uh, the kings realize that he's the one speaking the truth and not the others. Interestingly, they still go out to war and they try to trick God by disguising themselves and stuff. But exactly what the Lord said was going to happen still happened. Now, here we can apply a principle to our own hearts because we're not like the wise men of Babylon, right? We're not just faking it till we make it. We're not just trying to spin things so that we, uh, you know, look better or we advance or things like that. We have been given the truth from heaven about the most important things in life, about heaven and hell, about how to live a life that matters, about having a relationship with God, a real 
intimate, loving relationship with your Creator and Savior. We have that truth because it's been revealed on the pages of Scripture. And so as Christians, we've been given the truth from God through His revelation. We know about these things. Unlike these wise men, we don't have to fake it. We can speak on the authority of God's Word. And so when the lost come to us looking for answers, we can't just feed them feel-good treats. That's not the business that we're in. They need the truth. The lost and dying world out there needs the truth about who they are, who God is, and how Jesus loves them and wants to save them from their sin. Now, we give the truth with love. There's a lot about that in the Scripture. We deliver the truth in love, but we have to give the real truth about life and death and not hold back because we think it's unpalatable to people. Sometimes Christians or churches kind of slide into making the mistake of withholding certain aspects of biblical truth, say, for example, our personal responsibility for sin or the coming judgment for sin or the call to repentance. And, and we, we generally, not us, but just general Christians or sometimes churches slide into that laxness because we want unbelievers to feel good and, and join in with us, and then eventually, you know, eventually we'll let them know the whole truth. Oh, by the way, you're on your way to a Christless eternity in hell. The problem is that's not the job. The job isn't to make sure everyone feels, you know, giggly and happy all the time, and then when they're not looking, saying, by the way, you're going to hell, bye, you know. The job is to speak the truth in love so that people can be saved. You know, we're seeing all these terrible images and videos of stuff going on back east with the hurricane. You know what you don't want the rescue workers to do? To like float by on a raft while people are clinging to a log and saying, you know what? Everything's great. You're fine. You're really not in that big of a trouble. You know, it, I think it's great that you're holding on to that log. Nobody wants them to do that. It's like, get me off the log, man. Like the water's rising. And we understand that on a physical level, but we need to understand it on the level of eternal biblical truth as well. And so this is life and death we're dealing with. Unfortunately for these Chaldeans, they had nothing to say in this situation, and so they simply protest. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer or Chaldean. It is a difficult thing that the king requests, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so here it's great. They essentially out themselves as being fakes. They say, hey, man, people don't know how to do that kind of stuff. People don't have that kind of information. No one has that kind of knowledge. What about those other dreams you interpreted for me a month ago? Yeah, we didn't know what we were talking about then either. We're just making stuff up. They say, it's a difficult thing that the king requests. And this reminds us, as ministers of the truth, ministers of God's wisdom, you know what? Sometimes we will be called into the business of difficult things. It's not fun or easy to tell people, hey, you know what? You, if you die today, you're going to go to hell. But we don't want that to happen, and God doesn't want that to happen. Here's the way by which you can be saved. That can be a very difficult thing. Uh, the truth is not always easy to preach or explain, but is exceedingly precious and very, very necessary. At the end of verse 11, we have that great moment where they say, the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. What a sad thing to have to say about your God. And these were religious guys. 
into all this idolatry and stuff like that, worshiping all these weird gods in Babylon. But if you, have, if you had to sit back and say that about our God, yeah, the gods, they don't have anything to do with us. What a sad thing to have to say. And what a difference when we compare this with the God of the Bible. Remember, a consistent theme throughout this book is the cosmic contest between God and between the gods of this world, between King Jesus and kings like Nebuchadnezzar. Think about the God of the Bible, Emmanuel, God with us. His name says that he is with us. If time allowed, we could look at over a dozen verses which specifically talk about God dwelling with flesh, the opposite of what we see here. Dwelling with his people, whether it was in the past, in the present, or that it is his specific plan in the future to dwell with us forever. He says, he's on record, my plan, my desire is to dwell with my people forever. It's so important to God that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh and will live in all eternity as the God-man so that he can dwell with us. God dwelling with flesh is what our God, our Lord, is all about. And so once again, we see how these remarkable stories of Daniel reveal an extraordinary and marvelous God. Verse 12. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out and they began killing the wise men and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. It's not exactly clear how this worked. He may have cut down this representative group where they stood. It seems like, or perhaps more likely that he, his order was, okay, round all these dudes up. We're going to kill them publicly. It seems like that's what he was planning to do. Uh, they were going to be publicly torn limb from limb. That's a fun day for everybody. But we see that this is the kind of king Nebuchadnezzar was, the kind that would have you torn apart limb from limb when you were unable to do something that's impossible to do. That's the world's king. That's, that's what the, the top guy in the world says, you know what we're going to do? I need you to do something impossible. I can't do that. Okay, then we're going to tear you apart in front of everybody and make your house into an ash heap. Compare him to our king, Jesus Christ. What does he do? He's the king who washed his servants' feet. He's the king who makes the impossible possible for his people. He goes on record as saying, with God, with Jesus, all things are made possible. He's the king who intercedes for us and loves us and never asks us to do something that he won't then empower us to accomplish. He's the king who died for his enemies, not one that butchers his own servants. There's a big difference here. Now, next time we're together, we'll see Daniel come on the scene theme in the book is how he's always just living life, minding his own business, and these trials and troubles come knocking. But whenever they do, as a servant of God, Daniel has power and truth and revelation on his side, and God is able to use him in really wonderful ways. Now, you and I have power and truth and revelation available to us today as well. We've been scattered here on the earth to represent and serve a king of grace and love and life a king who has real answers for all the questions that really matter. And so serve confidently, speak clearly, walk in the truth as he is revealed. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, you need to get right with the King Jesus. He doesn't want you to die and go to hell. The Bible says that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He loves you. He has forgiveness for your sins. He has salvation for you, a hope and a future, not just in heaven, but for this life as well. But if you're unwilling to receive him, then you're choosing destruction. And he would ask you to call out to him 
uh, this evening and be saved.